Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. The other night, right after dinner, I mean, everybody's still at the dinner table. Right after dinner, I made my first mistake of the night. I got up from the dinner table, and I walked to the refrigerator. And I opened the refrigerator, and I stood there for a few seconds, just gazing from shelf to shelf until I saw the grapes. And I grabbed a handful of grapes and shut the refrigerator door. And so if you're thinking to yourself, what's so wrong about that? Pay attention, okay? And you can thank me later. I grab that handful of grapes and I start throwing back a couple. I shut the refrigerator door. I turn towards Lindsay. I've got grapes in my hand and she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? And then she points to the stovetop where there's still a couple helpings of the dinner that she made. And she says, did you not like the dinner I made for you? And that was when I knew I'd made my first mistake. And in the weeks since this interaction, I have thought about all the possible ways I could have answered that question. And I didn't go with any of those. In the moment, dumbfounded, grapes in hand, I just said, honestly, babe, it wasn't my favorite. Oh, that was my second mistake. You could say there was a tension in the air that night, a distance between us. And it wasn't because of anything she said. In fact, I immediately, immediately, as soon as I said it, I started apologizing. I wished I could take it back. And she was like, it's okay, it's okay. Except it didn't feel like it was okay. And the reason I knew it was not okay, again, was not because of anything she said or did to me. It was because this little voice inside, this little voice that kept screaming at me, well done, Einstein. Only I don't think he meant it when he kept calling me Einstein. You know what we call that little voice? We call it the conscience, the conscience. And the thing about the conscience, and you kind of see it in this case, is that the conscience wasn't just telling me that I had done something wrong. The conscience was telling me that I was in a state of wrongness. Do you know what I mean? That I had moved out of this, like, good, reconciled, healthy place. And I was in a new, different place. You know, in marriage, sometimes we call it the doghouse. Lizzie's not big on the doghouse. She's, she's a tremendous wife and actually a wonderful cook. But I had moved from a state of being good to a state of being not good. My conscience was confirming there is a distance between you and her. And the distance wasn't something my conscience itself was experiencing. My conscience was testifying on behalf of something, something deeper inside of me. You know, physically, Lindsay and I were not distant from one another. We were still in the same house, okay? Still went to sleep in the same bedroom, that night. It wasn't a physical distance. It was something deeper, right? 
And my conscience was telling me, way to go. All right. The conscience is kind of a curious place to start a sermon about the cross. But in the book of Hebrews, whenever the author discusses what happens at the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ, what happens there for you and me, he keeps using this word, the conscience. He keeps talking about my conscience. There's a connection between my conscience and the cross of Jesus. And to help us to think through that, he starts by talking about that deeper reality, the one that my conscience is bearing witness to, the division that I felt that night, the distance between Lindsay and I, okay? He starts by addressing that deeper, more fundamental part of who you are, okay? It's the soul. And he says this. This is Hebrews 6, starting in verse 19. He says this. We have this anchor for the soul. We have this anchor for the soul, and it is firm and secure. Leading up to this, starting in Hebrews chapter 5, the end of Hebrews 5, he talks about the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And then moving from Hebrews 5 into Hebrews 6, he's describing what that accomplishes for you and I. And he says that at that cross, you and I, our souls, the deepest part of who we are, have access to a hope. He says in the verse right before this that it's this hope that we flee towards to try to take hold of this hope. He says, you don't have to run. We have this hope in Jesus Christ crucified that is an anchor for the soul. Now, pause here with me for a second. And if you can throw that slide back up here, the anchor for the soul. Let's look at that for one more second. I just want you to look at the language. Doesn't that image of an anchor for your soul resonate with you? Doesn't it just connect to something deep inside of you? You know, the the authors of Scripture knew what it was like to be human, to feel tossed about by this, you know, the storms of life, to stay with the metaphor, to feel like life is just throwing us this way and that. Okay, the authors of Hebrews know what it's like to need, in that kind of environment, an anchor. In fact, there's really good evidence that the author of Hebrews was reflecting the experience of a community that had suffered a lot. Okay, so this image of an anchor for the soul is something that would have spoken to them like it speaks to you. Stephanie Howe, one of our children's ministers, this week in our staff meeting, we're reflecting and praying together. And she said something I won't forget. And Bruce and I looked at each other and laughed when she said it because we had been dwelling in this passage all week together. She didn't know that, and she just said, I think what people need right now is an anchor, she said. Okay, there's something about that that just speaks to us. Okay, so that image of an anchor for our souls, it gets us ready to think about the function of the conscience in relation to the cross of Jesus. Not because the conscience and the soul are the same thing, but because they go together. So in some ways, that's what the author of Hebrews is going to spend a couple chapters explaining. Let me try to make it a little more simple by talking about Pinocchio. Remember Pinocchio? All right, Pinocchio has this problem. He keeps lying, 
He keeps making bad decisions for which he has to lie. But why does he keep doing it? Do you remember? It's because he lacks what? A conscience. He lacks a conscience. And so he's given a conscience. Remember who his conscience is? Jiminy Cricket. He's given a cricket to be his conscience to help him keep from doing bad things. Well, at the end of Pinocchio, when Pinocchio comes to life, and this language isn't used in the Disney version, but what we would describe as Christians is that what gives Pinocchio life, that life force inside each of us is what? It's the soul. And when Pinocchio is filled with the soul, he no longer needs Jiminy Cricket. Because even Disney knows this. With the soul, that deep part of who you are, the part that gives your body life and direction and meaning, that with the soul comes a conscience, that the two are a package deal. Now, Jiminy Cricket is a really friendly conscience. And um, in the ancient world, they didn't think about the conscience as a cute little cricket or as like the angel that sits on this side of your shoulder, whereas the devil's over here on this side of your shoulder. In the, in the ancient world, the conscience was this thing, this voice inside of you that had one job. And the job was to shout at you when you had done something wrong and therefore were now in a state of being wrong. The job of the conscience was to work on your soul's behalf. And when your soul feels the distance from somebody else that has been created by your decisions, okay, when you move from being right with them to wrong with them, and you become unanchored and washed downstream, your conscience is the worker who serves the soul. And the soul tells the conscience, you you better let him know, or you better let her know, we are unanchored we're in trouble. The, the Greek historian Polybius, he said it like this. <clears throat> he said, there is no witness so dreadful. So this is not Jiminy Cricket. There is no witness so dreadful, no accuser so terrible as the conscience that dwells in the heart or the soul. He also talks about the soul. That dwells in the soul of every man. We might say every man and woman. Okay, so the author of Hebrews says that your soul, that deepest part of you, needs an anchor in this life. Okay. <clears throat> but then he says the reason you know that to be true, the reason that that speaks to you intrinsically, is because your conscience tells you so. Your conscience tells you when your soul is unanchored. Here's what I mean. Let me <clears throat> try to make sense of this. I need to hit this water real quick. So a few years ago, I get a text from a buddy at Highland. Let's say he's 40 years old. And he texts me, and I actually saved this text message in my files because I was so struck by the word that he used. What he said was, Eric, I feel like I'm just drifting. And then he goes on to describe how he feels distance from the people in his life, the people closest to him. There's friction at home between his wife and his family. Um, There's distance he feels at work. Work isn't giving him joy. It feels really hollow and empty, and he hates going. 
He doesn't have any desire to be at church. He's not even able to pray. He says, I feel like I'm drifting. All right, so let's do an exercise together. Let's imagine that instead of his Christian preacher, you know, in the year 2020, this was a couple years ago, actually. Instead of his Christian preacher, I am his Jewish priest. And it's 2,000 years ago, and he texts me, and he says, I feel adrift. First thing I would say is, text messages are awesome. This is great. Let's never talk on the phone ever again. Okay. Then the second thing I would say is, oh, I know what's going on. That's your conscience talking to you. Your soul is adrift. And what's caused this, this drift that you're feeling now in every area of your life, what has caused this is something that you have done. You have done something that was wrong and probably a lot of somethings. And because of that, the guilt, the shame that you feel, okay, that is confirming in you that there is a distance that has been created between you and God. The thing that you most need to be anchored to, that the tether between that anchor and you has been severed and you are drifting downstream. Your soul is scared about this. And so your soul has told your conscience, get his attention. We are at drift. There's a distance here between you and God. And so we need to fix this. And he texts back and he says, that sounds great. You're a great priest. And I say, I know. And then he says, how do we fix it? I say, it's actually pretty easy. I can take care of that for you. What you need to do is you need to go, right, and get me some blood. Because this is what we know to be true. The law requires, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what you need to do is go, go and get some blood or else you're not going to be forgiven. Your soul's going to be unanchored and your conscience is going to keep screaming at you. So what you need is some blood. And he says, yeah, that sounds good, some blood. Or wait, are you talking about my blood? I say, no, 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 no. Just, just go get me a goat or something. Go get me a lamb. Bring me that goat, that lamb. <clears throat> Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it into the holy place. Not the most holy place. Only the high priest goes in there and only once a year. And that's not me. I'm just a lowly lowly priest, but I'm going to go in that lesser of the holy places. I'm going to take that goat. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to take that blood. I'm going to sprinkle it here and there. Bada bing, bada boom. Your conscience is cleansed. You have been forgiven. Sure enough, we do it. He feels better. He feels really better. He's even considering tipping his priest, which you should consider doing sometime. But then he turns around, conscience cleared, feeling forgiven, and he walks off, and he looks at me. He turns and he looks at me, and this is the part I hate, and he says the question I don't want him to ask, which is, what if it happens again? What if I feel this way again? And I say, well, if it happens again, I guess you're going to have to come back. And just, just be sure to bring a goat. And We'll take care of all this. Again, we'll forgive you again. We'll anchor your soul again. But it's going to take blood. All right. The problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system, and, and what I just summarized is really Hebrews 7 through 10. Okay. 
what he reflects on in these chapters is that the problem with the old system was not that it didn't work, was not that you couldn't come back into the presence of God, that your soul couldn't be united with God's own soul, soul to soul. It was not that that didn't work. It was that it didn't stick. You had to keep coming back and doing it again and again. You'd leave there. You'd start marching home from the tabernacle. You'd do something else, and your conscience would start screaming at you again. All right, you'd say, so much for that goat. All right, this is what we read. This is Hebrews 9, verse 10. The gifts, this is what he's talking about, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And what he means is it wasn't able to permanently, in the context, it wasn't able to permanently unite your soul back to its anchor. Now, there's a part of us that says, yeah, that's what is so wrong about the old ways. The stuff we read about in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices again and again, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and my read the Bible through in a year program, I can never get those books because it's so bad. You know, I never get past them. All right. Let me press on that for a second. It's not that the system was bad. In fact, I think the system reflected what it means to be human. Because all of us can confirm, can confirm, sorry, all of us can confirm that true forgiveness is not easy. It's a process, isn't it? Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, a family I love really dearly the wife discovers that her husband is having an affair. And she is gutted by this. Absolutely gutted. Thing is, he's gutted by it too. His conscience has been screaming at him for months. He knows that what he is doing has made him, it's not just he's doing something wrong, it has made him wrong. And that he carries that wrongness with him everywhere he goes, from work to baseball games to the home around his wife and kids. His conscience has been screaming at him to stop this, to fix this for months. By God's grace and by her grace, they begin to work it out. First, they move back into the same home, and then back into the same bedroom. Eventually, they start going on dates again and working through this. She is trying her absolute hardest to forgive him. And he's trying his absolute hardest to be forgiven. He's making peace offerings all the time. He's doting on her gifts like he's never given her before. He shows up when he says he's going to show up. He compliments her. On dinner, he's just trying to build her up to earn that forgiveness. But she'll tell you, every once in a while, she looks at him and she can't stand the sight of him. Just seeing him makes her stomach hurt. There's all the memories of what he's done and what she learned come bubbling back up. And he'll tell you when he notices that in her, He hates himself 
that his conscience begins to scream at him, well done. You really messed this up. This distance you feel, you created this. This is your fault. His conscience just screams that at him. Okay. Both of them will confirm that without blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is really hard work. Bill and Kathy Ivey, shepherds here, whenever a couple comes to Bill, they, they oversee our marriage ministry, whenever a couple comes to Bill and Kathy and something like that has happened, Bill always asks them one question. He says, what are you willing to do to fix it? And if they don't say, whatever it takes, then he knows it's not going to work. Because forgiveness is really hard work. All of us in this room, all of us watching online, can confirm that for true forgiveness to happen, for that space that's created when we sin and we move from being in the right to in the wrong, for that space to be overcome and for us to come back together, it requires sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. You know, the old system, it wasn't flawed. It was true. It was true in that sense. Okay. But that is hardly a hope on which to stake your life. I mean, who can live like that? I know couples like this one. I mean, there's a season, there's a time, and a lot of times it is much longer than any one of those partners works where you're negotiating this reunion. You're reconciling and being forgiven over time, and it takes time. But I tell you, it can't go on forever because who can live like that? That is not a hope. You know, if Bill says to them, hey, listen, this is never going to get better. You're never going to trust each other again. That is hopeless, isn't it? Right, to be, to be you know, pressed with this possibility that your conscience will always continue screaming at you because your soul will always remain unanchored and there will always be a distance between the soul of our God and Father and your own soul. That is hardly something to stake your life on. That is not much of a hope to anchor your soul to. All right. So let me introduce you to one more word here. It's one word in Greek. It takes three words in English for us to translate it. It shows up in the New Testament, mostly in Hebrews, also in Romans. But every time it shows up in the New Testament, it only shows up in connection with one thing. And that is the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. And the word is one we translate with the phrase once for all. Once for all. We're going to go to Hebrews 9, verse 11. If you've got your Bible and you want to go there, you can. But let me set it up. We're going to find this, this word here once for all. In Hebrews 7 through 10, he describes what I've been describing, this sacrificial system where the priest has to go in again and again and again, offering blood every time to make you forgiven, to make you right with God. Okay, and then he says, at the cross, something different happened. And he begins to describe the cross as the holy of holies, the most holy place, which of course was this place at the center of the tabernacle where the high priest only went once a year to make atonement for all the people. And what he describes is that that holy of holy places moves. Okay? 
It just moves down the road in Jerusalem, but it moves to this place we know as Calgary. But the holy of holy places, the place where God is on earth, shifts. And that place becomes the cross. And then he says, this new high priest, Jesus, enters that holy place once for all. And then he offers himself. He becomes not only the priest, but the sacrifice. And his blood is different than the blood of all those animals because his blood is pure and perfect. It is God's own flesh and blood. So when he offers himself, something happens on the cross that is different than ever before. It is once for all. That's what we read here in Hebrews 9.11. Let's pick up. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. He's talking about his journey up to the cross. That is to say, not a part of the creation. What happens here with Jesus is actually affecting things in a spiritual realm, he says. Okay. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. And having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That line, serve the living God, literally it's minister to the living God. He's saying, so that you can overcome the distance you have felt because of the things you have done and minister, come into the most holy place to God. Okay. One of the arguments for the existence of God is the conscience. That thing that tells us when we have moved from being right to wrong, how would that thing know what to do unless there was some kind of moral standard. You know, in our, in our house, our boys know when they've done something wrong. Even if we haven't made a rule about it, they just know because inside of them from the time they are a child is this voice that tells them there is a standard out there and you have failed to meet it. The conscience is also, is also a, a reminder to us or a sign to us that we have a part of us, that deeper part, the soul, a part of us that is invisible, that we can't see, but that is no less real. And we know that because we hear from it all the time through our conscience, that there is this part of us then that will outlive our bodies. You know, this part of us like Pinocchio that animates our physical bodies that will last forever. And so our conscience tells us there's this part of you that will last forever, and I bear witness to that. And I also bear witness to the fact that you, by what you have done, have separated that part of you from that part of God. And that because of that, you're going to experience this world like a tossing sea unless you have an anchor. Okay? And you need something that will actually stick. You need something where you won't be washed downstream every time the waters rise. You need something you can hold fast to. You need an anchor that is firm and secure. And so 
You can search the pages of history. You can search the pages of the New Testament, but there is only one thing that is once for all, and it is the death of Jesus Christ. There is only one thing that removes my sin and makes me no longer wrong in the sight of God, but right, and it is the death of Jesus Christ. There is one thing we read that takes away my sin as far as the east is from the west so that my soul might find rest in him, and it's the cross. I'll end with this verse. This is how he says it. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, no more distance, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, broken for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, who is Jesus Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, not something you have to doubt, the full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope, think of Hebrews 6, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The reason we take this meal, communion, and I hope you grabbed it on your way in. If not, you might go back there and get it. Or if you're at home, I hope you'll get a little juice and bread and join us. The reason we take this meal every week It's not because we need to make a new sacrifice, but because the one sacrifice was once for all. And as we take his body given for us on the cross, his blood shed for us on the cross into our own, our conscience is cleared, not because of what we have done, but because what he has done once and for all. Let's pray. God, We celebrate, we glory in your cross. What you have done for us is incomparable. Nothing else in history has accomplished what you have in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would take hold of that hope, that our consciences would be silenced, that we would know that we are never far from you, that in you we live and move and have our being because of the cross. We take his body and blood, the body and blood of Jesus into us now. And we are freed from guilt and shame. We are your children in whom you delight. We praise you, O God. In the name of Jesus, amen.